The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawkbox. Welcome to a new trading week. Let's get into your headlines. Oil prices surging after terror attacks at two of Saudi Arabia's biggest production facilities, cutting the kingdom's output by half. Iran denies culpability as Washington blames Tehran for the attack and stands by with emergency oil reserves, with President Trump saying the U.S. is locked and loaded. Meanwhile, China's industrial output growth slows to a more than 17-year low in August. In another sign, the U.S.-China trade war is weighing on the world's second-largest economy. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson believes there's still time to secure a Brexit deal, but says he won't discuss another extension as he prepares to meet with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. A very warm welcome, everybody, to Squawk Box this morning. We start off, obviously, talking about this big headline story that is affecting the oil complex. Around half of Saudi Arabia's oil production has been shut down following a series of attacks on two of the kingdom's biggest energy facilities. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has accused Iran of being behind the attacks, while Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility. President Trump has authorized the release of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserves to, quote, keep the markets well supplied. An extraordinary event, extraordinary times as well, because as our viewers will know, WTI and Brent, the two of the key benchmarks, had been under a vast amount of recent downward pressure uh, on concerns of oversupply and obviously on the other side of the ledger as well, what the demand scenario was like as the global economy continues to underwhelm on the demand side as well. And everybody looking especially to China for that as well. But you can see the reaction here on both WTI, uh, a massive five bucks higher, around about $60 per, uh, per barrel, 9% that translates to. Similar kind of moves we're seeing on Brent crude as well. 10% to the upside, uh, $6 higher. But as Jeff was saying, the U.S. has been weighing in on this. President Trump says the U.S. is, quote, locked and loaded, depending on verification of who is behind the attack. The U.S. leader added Washington is waiting to hear from Riyadh about the terms under which the two countries should proceed. Well, of course, as you come to expect, Hadley now joins us from Riyadh. And Hadley, you are a journalist. We are journalists and already a narrative has arrived on the scene very quickly from the US uh, but it'd be very interesting to see whether that narrative remains the conventional wisdom upon which we all proceed from here. Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. You're absolutely right, because at the end of the day, we haven't yet heard, frankly, very much, if anything at all, from Saudi Arabia's foreign ministry. And this is interesting because this is a foreign ministry, as you know, from my interviews over the last several years, that has been very hawkish when it comes to Tehran and how worried they are about the spread of Iran's influence and that Shia crossing across the Middle East, how worried they are and how much they are hoping that countries will stand firm and take a stand when it comes to Tehran. But we haven't heard that much from them. And that is incredibly interesting, considering this is the largest 
largest ever terror attack on a Saudi oil facility or two Saudi oil facilities in the kingdom's history. And it comes as it does against the backdrop, uh, remember, on this timeline that we've seen of the president just a couple of days ago really suggesting for the very first time that he would be willing to ease sanctions on Tehran if a meeting at uh, the UN General Assembly might be possible. So a lot of people were saying, hey, he's just doing this for a photo op. The president, though, overnight in those tweets, rolling that suggestion back, saying he never agreed or even thought to agree to meeting with President Hassan Rouhani without preconditions. Mike Pompeo coming out almost immediately after these attacks and saying, according to U.S. intelligence, it wasn't the Houthi rebels who claimed responsibility, but that it was directly related uh, to an action taken uh, by Iran. There are also multiple but completely unconfirmed reports that this was an attack that took place from Iraq's sovereign territory. That would raise a whole host of geopolitical issues uh, and hairy ones at that for Saudi Arabia at this point, because as you've seen over the last couple of years, um, they've really worked very hard for a rapprochement with the government of Iraq. And really, you've even seen that coming from Kuwait and other Gulf countries as well, really trying to work together and enhance their investment in the energy sphere as well. So that would put them in a really sticky situation. So I do think, yet again, it is very, very significant that we haven't heard from the foreign ministry, that they're allowing Saudi Aramco and the oil ministry to really take the lead on this and to hopefully attempt to call markets. We understand that we could hear from officials at Aramco and the oil ministry as soon as just a couple of hours from now. What we have in terms of CNBC sources, what we've heard is that they have at least 35 to 40 days of supply to meet contractual obligations. And we we know that this is a company that has a great deal of reserves. They have millions of barrels in reserve and they have them at strategic locations around the kingdom and elsewhere. So this is going to be really interesting to see what plays out over the next couple of hours. But one of the things that I would underscore here is it really highlights, doesn't it, the vulnerability of Saudi Arabia in this region, the vulnerability of their economic lifeline, which is, of course, Saudi Aramco. And what does this mean for not only these Aramco bonds and pricing, but also, of course, for markets in general? This price hike in the, initially could be good for the Saudi economy that they need, of course, 80 to $90 per barrel to break even. But over the long term, this geopolitical risk, the real vulnerability of this country is tied directly to the security of their oil. Lots of points raised there, Hadley. Let's just pick up on the ramifications for Saudi Aramco because it was a fascinating turn of events last week where effectively we saw a change in the energy ministry to try and further those ambitions. What we've got now are analysts weighing up the impact on oil markets from the events. A geopolitical premium of $5 seems to have gone into the price. Can Saudi Aramco see a win or a negative on the back of this because a higher oil price means more proceeds for the company? But then that said, geopolitical risk and if you've got production of facilities impacted, there's a hit on the other side. So how is this all going to work out, those swings and roundabouts? It's going to be fascinating to see them try to strike a balance here, isn't it, Karen? Because as I mentioned, it's all about that Aramco IPO that frankly um, was what everyone has told us was behind, really, the ouster of Khaled al-Fawad, the long-term Saudi energy minister, because he wasn't as behind this Aramco IPO as the government wanted him to be for various reasons. Um, but I think that was really interesting over the weekend. Remember, we had the JMMC and the OPEC meeting. We had a big press conference with the new Saudi energy minister. He was really trying to highlight the transparency uh, of what he was bringing in terms of uh, his ministry, not just to OPEC, but also in terms of transparency on Saudi Aramco, as well as the production capacity of this country in terms of how many barrels per day they we're going to be bringing to market in terms of those production cuts. And I asked him a question that nobody seemed that interested in at the time, which was that, you know, Saudi Arabia 
the United States have a very strategic relationship, but the U.S. president now saying that he could potentially um, ease those sanctions on Tehran. Are you talking about this with your OPEC counterparts, what that could mean for the market? What is the plan if something were to get off the ground in terms of a new relationship or a new dynamic with Iran? And he said, you know, we remain transparent. We are having these conversations. He didn't allude to any kind of plan. But then a few days later, you see the kingdom hit by a major terror attack uh, at two of its biggest facilities. And in terms of that geopolitical risk premium, there's no doubt that I think the markets are going to have a long time to assess this. I mean, they're going to have to sit back, I think, and really, really focus on what this actually means. Because if the Saudis can't protect these installations, I mean, the Aramco IPO, does these things put this kind of uh, a momentum? Does it call that into question? And that's certainly something that one is hoping to hear from those officials over at Aramco in the next couple of hours. Hadley, thank you very much for bringing us the latest. A very detailed focus there on what's played out over the weekend. Well, let's uh, just switch the lens over to Iran, which has rejected U.S. blame for the attacks with the Iranian Foreign Minister Javed Zarif accusing U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo of deceit, saying Washington's maximum pressure campaign on Tehran has failed. NBC's Ali Aruzi joins us with more. Ali, curious turn of events for Iran now too. Last week we were talking about the resignation of an Iran hawk John Bolton in the United States, now after the attacks on the weekend and the U.S. blaming Iran, it seems as though we've got maximum pressure on this country. So just talk us through the, the ramifications as you see it. Well, that's right. I mean, I think the Iranians were very happy to see Bolton go. But I have to remind you that there are a lot of John Boltons in Iran that don't want a relationship with the United States. And any talk of detente or a possible meeting between Donald Trump and uh, Hassan Rouhani had uh, made people in Iran, hardliners in Iran, very, very uncomfortable. So the timing of these attacks is somewhat suspicious. Some people do think that uh, Iran may have been behind this. Also, it was a very sophisticated attack, and I think that's why uh, Secretary Pompeo was saying that uh, it couldn't have been the Yemenis because they don't have that kind of sophisticated hardware to launch something like this. But it was an incredibly brazen attack on the beating heart of Saudi Arabia's oil production. It hit the world's largest petroleum processing plant, uh, disrupted half of Saudi Arabia's oil output, uh, unsurprisingly making oil prices soar. And Iran has always been warning that if they are put under pressure, they could disrupt the world's oil supply, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or whether it's in the Persian Gulf. Um, and, and that's exactly what's happened, whether they're directly involved or whether they gave an order to the Houthis to do this is unclear at this at this stage. But um, this latest episode is very alarming. It's been an extremely volatile summer in the Middle East. Uh, and this is just going to fuel the regional crisis even further. As you said, President Trump said that the U.S. was locked and loaded and ready to respond to these drone attacks, saying that the U.S. knew who was behind them without mentioning any names. But Secretary Pompeo laid the blame squarely on Iran over the weekend, uh, uh, even though the Houthis had claimed responsibility. Um, so this is just going to get a little worse and worse. Uh, the accusations and counter accusations are coming from both sides. Uh, as you said, uh, Iran was quick to issue denials and threats as well. Foreign Minister Javad Zarif said that this was a, 
uh, maximum deceit by the United States after their campaign of maximum pressure had failed, while commanders in the Revolutionary Guard reiterated that their forces could strike military bases across the Middle East uh, with an arsenal of ballistic missiles that are aimed at U.S. assets in the region. Um, the, um, so so it, it's, it is a very, very volatile situation. Even one of the Revolutionary Guard commanders said that this area is now a powder keg and the smallest miscalculation or accident uh, could lead to some sort of conflict. Ali, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, let's move this on. And actually, let's stick with the story and move it on at the same time, if I may. And look at the wider ramifications. I think to date we've talked about the political, uh, geopolitical and military and uh, economic uh, fundamentals for the region and for for those oil uh, consumers as well. But what about the broader economy as well? We've got an FOMC meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday as well. If core prices are going up on key assets, and don't forget, oil isn't just about transportation. Oil is about all the, 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 the feed stocks. It's all about the transportation of food as well. So your price of core uh, food, uh, energy, everything goes up across the board as well. So ramifications for a price hike for the global economy, which is already slowing. Very important there. I see the Hang Seng down 1.2%. Again, is that about domestic protests ongoing yet again uh, this weekend? Or is it about the broader story where the Shanghai Composite showing a 0.1% increase? By the way, we haven't got uh, Japanese markets today. A great national holiday they have on the uh, September the 16th. It's the Respect for the Aged Day, Respect for the Elderly. And they've been running that one since 1966. So uh, a very important holiday in Japan as well, which of course gets most of its energy from external sources. So that could have, again, big ramifications uh, for the Nikkei. Let's take a look at uh, what has been labelled safe havens. And this is extraordinary, isn't it? Because we've been having the conversation, is a treasury, is the 10-year paper still a safe haven, given where it's come from, uh, given who owns it as well? And it's been an extensive conversation we've had over the last six or so sessions, but the yield bang up from that 1.5 level we hit recently, now up to 1.9%. Gold trading uh, back up at 15.04, having had a tough week last week. Uh, the futures for the US markets, well, let's just have uh, a very quick look at those. The implied open uh, for the US markets down 19.64 points for the uh, S&P 500. The Dow down 149 points. And the Nasdaq called down 85 points at the start of trading. Yeah, and I think people need to be very focused on this. Almost every recession bar one, I think, has been connected to a spike in the energy price somehow. And obviously, this is just one more catalyst that I think people will be concerned about, particularly as we see this weakness in China. Let's focus a little bit on the Chinese aspect to this story. Saudi Arabia is one of China's largest crude suppliers. Oil majors in the country are trading sharply higher following the surge in energy prices. Ginny Yan is with us, Chief China Economist at ICBC Standard Bank. Um, Ginny, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the industrial production data, but it would be interesting, I think, for our audience just to get a sense from you as to what this higher energy price could mean initially for China. I think it's um, very interesting to see the implications because China, as you know, is going through a little bit of uh, uh, supply issues, particularly on the food CPI front. Food inflation has been the key issue. So the actual um, implicit, I guess the impact of coming in from the energy will have further pressure on, on the CPI in particular. 
core CPI is still rising. So there's been some talks in the latest data, especially to see that on top of domestic supply issues, are there external issues that might also. And what that uh, really could have an implication on is whether policymakers will have to really add the inflation into you know its policymaking decision because at the moment priority is still about stabilizing growth, in, uh, ensuring that uh, liquidity is still ample. If you throw in the inflation picture into the story, it becomes a little bit more difficult and challenging for the authorities. Yeah, it certainly complicates plans for all central bankers. We're going to talk some more with you in just a moment. Please stay with us. Ginny Yang, Chief China Economist for ICBC Standard Bank. Uh, China's Triple R Cup comes into effect as the country's industrial production slumps to its lowest level since 2002. We'll catch up on all that data in just a moment. And if you just can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. China's industrial production data shows the economy growing at its slowest pace in 17 and a half years, or rather the data was the slowest in uh, 17 and a half years in August, highlighting persistent weakness in the country's factory and consumer sectors. Production rose 4.4% during the month. That missed estimates, retail sales and fixed asset investment also missed expectations. Meanwhile, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang warns it'll be, quote, very difficult for the economy to grow by 6% or faster. In an interview with Russian media, Li said China faces certain downward pressure from slowing global growth. He also blamed rising protectionism and a high base from which China has started. The comments come as the country's recent triple R cut comes into effect today. Ginny Yan is with us, uh, Chief China Economist at ICBC Standard Bank. Ginny, how concerned do we need to be about this industrial production number? I think I would have been concerned if uh, we didn't have sign-off on further stimulus. But at the moment, I think we have that sign-off right now. We've seen already the implications, even in this month's data, in that local government projects, infrastructure projects, are being front-loaded from next year into this year. And even after the press conference given by the State Council Media Office, it seems that um, there's a real commitment to boost domestic economy, and we haven't seen that for a very long time. There's always been the argument that deleveraging is very much a priority, that we shouldn't be stimulating the economy too much. But you know, the first sign that we're seeing there is a little bit of a slight panic button being pushed. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of policies to be used right now. However, it does seem that uh, domestic growth is starting to become a key priority once again. But I mean, 
All economies grow up, and we can't talk about China as a developing nation. It's a developed nation. This is a big industrial power. When countries grow up, they don't have the same kind of growth they had previously. So why specifically, just remind our viewers, are the Chinese so worried about a slowdown to what happens traditionally and economically in every country historically? For instance, having 6% growth for a developed economy is off the Richter scale and actually would have danger signals for many developed economies as well. As well, about overheating. So having a month-on-month figure in industrial production of up 4.4%, it's a really good figure for most of us. So why are the Chinese so afraid of a slowdown? It's very interesting. China has many, um, I guess, traits of a developed economy, but in most ways, it's still very much a developing economy. Look at the GDP per capita. Look at the, you know, the, the kind of differentiation between different parts of society. Now, key is about employment. How do you ensure stable employment? And jobs are still in place. People still have a steady income. If you look at consumption, that's also quite weak, and that is a really worrying thing. It's not the fact that you know factors and um, state-owned sectors are starting to slow. It's the fact that people are starting to fear that they're going to lose jobs. And this, I guess, for the authorities, is the number one most frightening thing for the economy. Uh, just on that briefly, why, why is that such a worry, given the fact that they, like the rest of us, and the Japanese and, and the Europeans and the US, have demographic issues, which means actually um, the growth of the population is challenged going forward. So why are they so worried about the employment picture? There's an ageing population for sure. That's a longer structure, a structural issue. However, in the shorter term, if people start to lose jobs, you have all sorts of societal problems. So social unrest will challenge the current authorities. You know, we've already seen there's all sorts of external pressures already. And of course, if you have rising uncertainty within the domestic economy, that will really drag on consumption. And consumption has become the biggest contributor to growth. So if you have slowing consumption, you know, the momentum for growth will will be derailed. So fast forward to October and talks around trade. We've got the US and China now agreeing to sit down for a conversation at a high level. We've seen the postponement of further tariffs coming to force for a couple of weeks in October. And we also saw the Chinese agreeing to buy farm products from the US last week. What do you think this means? If you look at the tea leaves, do you think we are getting close to the point of a resolution? I don't think we're close to a resolution and this is going to be a very uh, long set of negotiations. I think even it will drag on for years to be frank, but for markets certainly gives some certainty there is commitment at least from both sides to resolve the current situation. That's why it's been reflected a little bit in the currency um, in the last uh, latest so few days. So you're saying there's no deal before the next US presidential election. You're on that page I as well. I think so. I, I still think that this will drag on for a very long time. However, I think um, there is realization that for both domestic economies, which are both going through very high pressures in, in terms of growth momentum, there needs to be some sort of uh, solution particularly um, the ones that impact certain you know, priority industries most. For China, for example, pork prices have been going up and of course um, it's been um, importing pork actually not just from the US but from other economies too now. Um, is there a, a, a long tail to the protests in Hong Kong in terms of economic impact? I mean, on the face of it, it may look very localised, but obviously Hong Kong banks have been a source of capital for mainland Chinese uh, growth. 
Plus, I guess, there are also risks around Chinese assets that are located in Hong Kong. How do we read that in terms of its impact on economic activity and market levels? It's very difficult to tell at this stage. As you say, it's, it seems to be quite localised. However, I'm sure, it, first of all, it will have some impact on sentiment. Um, a lot of Chinese investors, if you ask them, the first port of call when they look at outbound investment is Hong Kong, is Singapore. So these are regional investment centres. And also as a financial centre, you're right, most Chinese uh, um, uh, entities have set up in Hong Kong. And of course, this will have implications for its employees, its, uh, you know, in investment decisions. Um, but that said, it uh, also has almost pushed um, China's opening up even even faster and even, you know, trying to find a diversified set of financial centres outside the Asia region. So this probably will have um, benefits for London. I know it's going through Brexit, but however, London, you know, New York and other sort of financial centres that are seeing increasing Chinese investments outwards. Mm. Any calls on the yuan? We've seen a lot of movement in the last couple of months and uh, things have settled down just a little bit at this stage. What do you think happens next on the currency front? Do you expect sort of an onslaught just because of uh, some of the efforts to get money out of the country and capital flows has been certainly a key issue. If we see no resolution in the trade war, if this continues, then you've got to say at some point we've got to reassess where we are in dollar yuan again. Sure. I think on the currency front, you know, there's been a lot of call for depreciation, further depreciation. I, I would have said that might have been the case if we'd, again, if we didn't see further stimulus. But now we've seen further stimulus. I think onshore domestic, there's a, um, a lot of expectations that uh, that will have some impact on the currency. A stable currency, for, you know, stabilization of the currency and actually probably some ex appreciation expectations because the growth is now being supported by stimulus. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.